You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. I am Sable Lomax. My pronouns are she and her. I am very, very excited for today's episode of the Fearless Futures podcast, season two, episode 11, the nonlinear road to equity, because I get to talk to you, Jeremiah. How are you today? I'm doing great. Doing better now, now that I'm talking to you, Sable. My day is not over, but I'm pretty sure this will be the highlight of the day. Um, and I know I'm a few hours ahead, so I can say that with confidence. Like that is, that is the truth. (laughs) So out of all of the guests that we have had, Jeremiah, I think you're one of the few I've actually physically met in person. Doing this podcast was the first time I received your full bio. And I said, well, I knew you were amazing and you do amazing things, but it's something about reading it. I said, oh. We will not shorten this. How do you feel when you get your bio read? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? Which side of the spectrum are you on? Are you in the middle? I am probably more on the discomfort side. That is me. Especially especially the long version. Especially the long version. Well, I don't know what version I have here, but here here we go, folks. I it's hope it's good. the shorter version. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good one, I promise. Jeremiah Chan, pronouns he and him, is the head of patents, licensing, and open source at Meta. He and his team are responsible for the development of Meta's worldwide patent portfolio, intellectual property transactions, open source software, IP risk mitigation initiatives, as well as industry-wide efforts to promote gender diversity, equity, and inclusion in innovation and the IP profession. Jeremiah is also a member of the USPTO's Patent Public Advisory Committee, where he has led subcommittees for legislation and policy, artificial intelligence, and innovation expansion. Prior to joining Meta, Jeremiah led an international team at Google that was focused on portfolio strategy, operations, and data science. And before Google, Jeremiah served as head of IP for JDSU. He started his career in private practice with the law firm Fish and Need, where he specialized in litigation, opinion work, and client counseling. A graduate of UC Berkeley with, I might add, highest honors while working as a marketing assistant at the University of California Press, received his JD from Cornell Law School, I know you recall, and worked as a law intern at Cornell's Legal Aid Clinic. Jeremiah serves as an advisory board member for the the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University School of Law and as chairman of the board for the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, a nonprofit organization that combats human trafficking. Jeremiah, I don't know if that was the long version of the short version, but my first question to you is, are you eating and sleeping as much as you need to as a human being, given <laughs> all that you do? I am eating too much these days. I need to stop eating, actually, and I need to exercise more. So every guest that we've had thus far, we've asked them this question. I'm sure I paraphrase it in different ways. Um, but essentially, and it's kind of an unfair question, but if you had to choose a mic drop, equity moment, learning, if you will, from the past, what would that moment be for you? So some people have had two moments, but if you had to like pick one that stood out to you or stands out to you, at least in this moment, 
what what would that be? Yeah, it's a great question, Sable. I, I would say um, I have had a few, mm-hmm. but there is a common there is a common theme to all of them, which is uh, it's actually a person, and that person is your CEO and founder of Fearless Futures, Hannah Nemo McCluskey, um, who uh, who created this great organization, Fearless Futures. I actually did not know about them until I joined Meta back in 2018. And as you know, some folks may not know, uh, Meta has engaged Fearless Futures to do a lot of education around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I had the good fortune of enrolling in a pilot at the time, a pilot class in 2019, where they were kind of just testing out and experimenting with this new type of class that incorporated this other problem-solving framework that I am obsessed with called design thinking. And the class was called Design for Inclusion And rather than sending one of Fearless Future's talented instructors out to teach this class, we actually got the founder. We sent, you sent Hannah to come to Fremont, California. I had Hannah for a good week with a a cohort of leaders throughout the company. Uh, And in the course of that week, several mic drop moments that for me opened my eyes to systems of oppression, like understanding my own lived experience with racism and discrimination, but not really seeing or understanding the systems. So Hannah kind of gave me a dose of reality and education there. And I think for many people who are tuned in, you know, unlike, not unlike me, you know, we don't really have this kind of education growing up in the classrooms. You know, this is something that I know I would love to see more of in, you know, elementary and high school and and even college, but a lot more education around these issues. But, you know, for me not having them, I kind of just ate up what Hannah was teaching us And in the course of that week, a few different mic drop moments where I kind of finally could see the systems of oppression at play. That mic drop moment, I often analogize it to like, you know, Keanu Reeves and Morpheus, you know, do you want the red pill or the blue pill? Uh, I feel like I've been eating, you know, virtual um, filet mignon for a long time and thinking it's real and it's actually not real. It's just code. Um, so Hannah gave me the red pill and kind of opened my eyes to systems of oppression. I think she made me realize for the first time that I am in a position of privilege and power. And that kind of gives me a superpower to bring change to the system. Whereas I never saw myself as a person who had a lot of privilege or power or voice. And she kind of pointed that out. And as a result of that, gave me another mic drop moment to say, with that privilege and power, you need to do something. And the last, the last response I'll give you, Sable, is there was a particular moment during our class pretty early on where Hannah facilitated this game with a bunch of balls. That's my And we would break out. <laughs> we, I had never, so some people on the call may have played this before as part of leadership exercises or team building exercises, but I had never played this before. We broke out into small groups and to give you the flavor, we each got a card with a particular job that we were supposed to do. So we had a set of balls and it's almost like our little small group. We were like a little company manufacturing these balls and we had to do certain things with them and pass them around and etc you get the idea so we started doing this and in the course of this exercise one person in our circle just started being super obnoxious and picking on one of the people in our circle throwing balls at them disrupting their job they like they couldn't work they couldn't do their job and meanwhile i wasn't being bothered i was doing my job but i felt bad for this this colleague of mine who was in the circle who after a little while, like in the beginning, it was all fun and games. So we're all laughing. But after like 5, 10, 15 minutes of having a ball thrown in your face, they were pretty irritated and annoyed, you know, understandably so. 
And I remember feeling like, what is going on? Like, what's the point of this? It doesn't feel good. And like, can we just stop this? But we went on and we tried to do our jobs. And the interesting thing about it was when we debriefed about the exercise afterward, spoiler alert here, um, <laughs> the whole idea was that we each had a job and this person, you know, disrupting this other person's job and being like super annoying, that was actually their job. And one of the questions that really stuck with me that I think was another aha moment was, I think at one point Hannah said, why didn't someone like stop it? Like, why didn't someone say like, this is not cool. Why didn't you say something? Why didn't you do anything? Nobody in my circle did that. Like no one in my circle who wasn't being bothered said anything, even though we all felt like it was not right. It wasn't fair. Someone was not being treated fairly. Someone was actually treating, being treated pretty badly. And that was definitely a light switch, right? Like, what am I doing and how am I being complicit to the systems of oppression at play? So I give all the credit to Hannah. She had a, a bunch of different microphone drop moments for me. Um, and they all point to her as the common theme here to say, hey, you need to wake up. Thank you for that. Even bringing in the word complicit and, and tying that to if you're only focused on your role and what you're supposed to be doing, but you're very aware of what's happening and how what's happening might not be right, but yet you don't do anything about it, whether that's saying something, speaking up, you know, engaging, inserting yourself in some way, shape or form, you know, how that impacts overall dynamics, but also how it does make you complicit in the harm that is that is taking place. We come to this work from different places for different reasons. I have my reasons as I like to, my Instagram profile says black girl born in Brooklyn. My family migrated from the South during the great migration era that took place in the States. Um, there's still family that have, that lived in the South, never left. So, you know, we come to it from different reasons The the quality of life that they might have expected when they got to Brooklyn that did not receive on both father's side and New York side, um, my mother's side, because there's the assumption that the North is so progressive and that the South is the complete opposite, as if it's still not racism and classism and discrimination taking place, just manifesting slightly differently. Like we, we come to this work for different reasons. Jeremiah, if you had to pinpoint and this is another unfair question if you will you know how you came to this work as a, as you know to be as committed as you are now what would you say your reasons have been in the past or are to this day i think i mean some of what you just shared sable resonate with me in terms of my own lived experience and i, I would be i'd be lying if i didn't say that had a, a role to play in why i do what i do but i think it's just it's one part of it and so briefly on that note, like for me, having grown up in, you know, a rural part of Illinois uh, as an early kid and being the only, you know, Asian family within, I don't know, a 50 mile radius, my family and I grew up and my brothers and I grew up with a lot of looks like we have never seen anyone who looked like you before. And that came with a lot of racism and discrimination um, that was just part of our daily lives. Some of it was, was very explicit. Others, other, other instances and examples were more um uh you know things and experiences i didn't actually realize until many years later and there are now experiences that have come up um as i've listened to other people's stories and shared my own that like i didn't even realize so just a couple of quick examples i remember right growing up as a small kid in in you know farm town illinois um 
one of the weekend things that my brothers and I would do was often we'd jump on our bikes and just ride around town everywhere. And I remember uh, every weekend or many weekends as we'd be jumping on our bikes and leaving the house, I remember my mom would take out the hose and she'd be washing the aluminum siding on the side of our house. And I honestly thought that was like a normal chore people did until many years later, having a conversation with my mom, who finally told me that these were the reason why she was washing the side of our house was that neighbors would throw dog poop on the house as a message to like get out of the neighborhood. Never had any idea. And I think part of it was probably my parents shielding me from that, that ugly reality that they were dealing with and taking the burden on mm -hmm. um, and me not seeing. So some of it was explicit. Some of it was very like, I didn't even realize what was happening at the time. And now in hindsight, understanding more what that experience is. I think that lived experience with the education that people like Hannah have given me have really kind of turned it into a realization that I'm not the only one or just there, there are just a few people in a particular area of the country or neighborhood. They're the only ones who experience this. No, like you start when you are able to see the systems, it's almost like seeing the matrix. You start to realize there's so many people groups from marginalized communities that are all experiencing different forms of the oppression. And so for me, that was definitely an eye opener to say, we need to do something here. Like this can't be happening. Like the experiences I've had and the marginalization, it's happening to so many people and it's so rooted in the institutions, policies and laws of our country. We've got to re we got to examine all of this and we really do need to do what we can to make change. And these are some of the ideas I've shared before around like, you know, Hannah instilling me that as people with privilege and power, you have an ability to bring change. And so that's been part of it. I think the other part of it is I've been really lucky to be not only surrounded by amazing mentors and authors and other people I've followed. So, you know, Hannah's one of them. Michelle Silverthorne is another person that, that I met and has continued to inspire me. Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative is one of my personal heroes. Um, if you ever listens to this, I would love to meet you and talk to you and pick your brain. But I feel like I, I've had so many uh, sources mm -hmm. of knowledge and wisdom around these issues. And then even on my own team, Sable, yeah. as we have focused on building a diverse team, I have remarkable people on my team that inspire me every day. Um, just a quick note about one gentleman, because today is, is very apropos. We're having a graduation ceremony for a program that we, my team and I rolled out last year called the Patent Pipeline Program. I in my profession- telling me about this program, yeah. In my profession, there is severe underrepresentation of women and minorities in what we call the patent profession. So drafting patent applications and sending them through the patent office and getting granted you know, patent rights for innovators. And there's just drastic underrepresentation. There's a guy on my team, Braxton Davis, who uh, almost a little over a decade ago, this is like right out of law school, he saw this problem and on his own decided to create a nonprofit organization called NCPP that would give free patent prosecution training to people of color and women who have technical backgrounds and can learn how to do this and become employable and have this ability and these skills. And they would give that out for free and provide that training. He came to Meta last year and agreed to join our team. And one of the first conversations we had was, how can we brainstorm taking this program to the next level? And out of that was born the Patent Pipeline Program where we take these talented and diverse individuals that are trained through NCPP and we connect them with our network of top tier law firms throughout the country that are doing work for Meta 
who are looking for diverse candidates to build their diverse teams and workforces within their law firms. For years, I've been hearing from these law firm partners, we just can't find these diverse candidates. They don't yeah. exist. They exist. And so with the patent, yeah. they, do, they do exist. And with the patent pipeline program, we also can hand them to you. Connect we can identify them. them and, we can, and so we've been able to connect the dots here and everybody wins. And so today we have our graduation ceremony for our first inaugural graduating class. I am just so privileged to be surrounded by people like Braxton Davis, who, I mean, he's constantly saying thank you to me for supporting his program and his nonprofit, but I just can't tell him enough. Like I am inspired every day by people like him, right? Didn't have a lot of resource. And he just, he saw this problem that seemed too big and complex for everybody else. And he said, I have to do something and I'm going to do what it takes. And the sacrifice, I can't even tell you nights, weekends, years to build that nonprofit create that world-class training because he's laid that foundation, his dream, this dream of creating equity in our profession is a reality. And it's just the first step in, you know, essentially changing the face of our profession forever. So I just could not be more proud and inspired by people like him. And I've got, he's not the only one. I have other people on my team who are just, they're doing incredible things. So to answer your question, I am spurred to take action and, and commitment to, to, to doing what I can with my privilege and power because I've been inspired by so many people and I've been challenged. You know, Hannah is one of them, not afraid to give me that that not, radical no. candor, mm-hmm. right? Hey, you need to be doing more and you're not doing enough. And because she's not afraid to say that, that's really caused me to kind of reflect on how can I do more? Um, and uh, it's something I love. You highlighted so much just now. The the reality and fact that so many people don't really engage with or haven't really considered that for those of us who are from um, marginalized communities or minoritized ethnicities, it's not necessarily true to assume that the two-year-old or the eight-year-old or the 15-year-old for that matter recognizes discrimination when it's happening or even has the language to you know, describe and say like, this is a manifestation of oppression. So I think that's something that I really wanna amplify because I think it's an assumption that too many people have. Like, of course they knew, maybe not. Maybe you were just a kid on Saturday riding your bicycle and thought of all the cleaning that my mom does, that's another thing on her list. It, it was just as, you know, as simple as that to learn later, oh, there was more to it. So I think I, like that's definitely something I just wanted to amplify. And then really that piece, you know, no matter the industry. So I know in this instance, we're talking about, you know, the patent industry and innovation and innovators and such. But it's a common refrain for folks in leadership in different industries to say, well, we want diverse talent, but they, they don't exist. They're not out there. And you're not the first one to say who's been a guest on our show. They are out there. They've been out there for years. It's a matter of connecting the dots. Maybe the methodology that's been used to try and seek these people isn't accurate to get to that community. But the people are out there. The talent is is out there. Creating the opportunity and the space and drawing those connections is often, you know, that networking is often what's missing, but not the talent. I think you're absolutely right, Sable. Now, that was something that was kind of eye-opening to me, which is, yes, the underrepresentation is real. And, and the numbers of minorities and women in the IP profession is very low, yeah. but there are many talented individuals out there. And that was one conversation 
you know, late one evening after our class, you know, designed for inclusion, but one evening, I remember, you know, we finally broke after a full day of, of instruction. And I stayed back and I said, I need to talk to you, Hannah, about something. And she said, what's going on? I said, I love this class. I'm learning so much. But, you know, trying to build diverse teams is something I've been trying to do for a long time now across, across, over the course of my career. And as I look back at my track record, I haven't been able to do it. And I think in the IP profession, they just don't exist. And without even having studied my profession and the data, I mean, almost immediately, her first response was, you're not trying hard enough. And I said, whoa, like, let me explain my, no, you're not trying hard enough. And I, I remember that was a conversation that really made me think about like, how can I rethink the way, the approach, the mentality, and even the methodology I use to to hire and recruit people, recruit, recruit talent. Yeah. And I feel like that was the first step in lots of changes in kind of rethinking what is the evaluation criteria, the hiring criteria we use. We know that diverse teams are better. So then why are we not building them? Honestly, we're not really factoring in the value of that cognitive diversity when we try to hire. And so that was one piece of the whole evaluation criteria we use is kind of broken and distorted and based on the status quo that has you know, been pervasive of systems of oppression for so long. So that was kind of one piece. The other one was it was a real opportunity during the pandemic to actually broaden our recruiting net to different parts of the country. So, you know, for me, having been a hiring manager for a long time, I never really recruited talent, talented IP professionals from places like Atlanta mm -hmm. or even DC or other areas Those where the there are more tech hubs that yes. and and with concentrated populations of marginalized communities. But again, if you're not thinking through what schools do we normally go to? What, you know, what what locations do we normally stick to? Well, yeah, that's why you can't find the diverse talent because you're not going to where they are. I mean, what you just said, it sounds so straightforward um, and it's almost silly in terms of what actually plays out, right? So in big tech, for instance, like where I live, right in smack dab in, in Silicon Valley, all big tech firms, like they like to see other big tech firms on people's resumes. So we're all kind of hiring from each other. This has been an ongoing thing for years. Law firms, they love to see big, prestigious law firms on people's resumes. Oh, they've been at Latham. They've been at MoFo. They've been, they like- Investment banking, firms. like no matter it is, they yes. want to see the big- Investment, no matter what the industry is. You've been at Harvard, you've been at MIT, except, yeah. Oh, that's the, yeah. I mean, that, that's the other thing as well, right? Like I've been at companies where the unsaid rule is we like to see law schools from Ivy Leagues on the resumes. And now when you actually study it and look at systems of oppression, I mean, I, I think with the exception of maybe one Ivy League, all of them are rooted in a history of slavery and racism. And you think that just disappears? Hell no. And so all these things, there's this whole, there's this whole circle and network and cycle of people trying to hire from these different institutions and schools when in fact, none of them have diverse teams. And then all of the leaders in those organizations then say, why can't we build diverse teams? We know they're better. We just can't find the diverse people. It is almost silly, but it, it's also not. It's also very discouraging um, yeah. that this is the cycle we're in. It is is definitely a cycle. It's like if it's top 10 always, who makes up the top 10? Who gets into the top 10? How many that get into the top 10 are legacy? You know, even though that's an entirely different conversation. And then you're right, it creates a cycle where it's like, well, everyone's extended network is just a microcosm and replica of everyone else's existing network that is not diverse. And here we are going, we need 
diverse talent. And it's like, this is a really large country. I promise you they're out there. Okay. They might not be where you've been looking, but they are there. So a little, a little confession time prior to me joining Meta and keep in mind, like I've been now practicing since 99, I've been out for a while and, and a hiring manager for a long time prior to me joining Meta. And I've been here for about four years now. I had never hired anyone and I have hired too many people to count. I had never hired anyone from an HBCU. At Meta, it was the first time I hired someone from HBCU. Now we have multiple team members who have HBCUs on their resumes. What's interesting is I find I have other leaders that I often talk to and sometimes they'll say like, it's great. You're hiring people who have these diverse backgrounds, HBCUs. I'm thinking our vice president of the United States went to Howard for God's sake. Like I shouldn't, there should be no one patting me on the back for, for looking at HBCUs for talent. It's clear. And so this just, again, it's just, it's I'm almost silly to see how long. Yeah, yeah. that is, so, well, one, for those who don't know, who might be listening for the first time, HBCUs is historically black university. Um, loads of them in the country, just so you know. Won't list them all, uh, but our vice president currently, because this is a podcast, so who knows, you might listen to this in 20 years, but our current vice president is um, a graduate of Howard University, which is also one of the top HBCUs. The assumption that if you did not attend top 10, that you're not smart enough, swift enough, and you won't be able to handle the job. I think there's so many things that have to be untangled. But I love the fact that you just said confession. Jeremiah, you were so honest in admitting your failures. Um, and not just like in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or even in a group conversation. Like you will admit them publicly. You will share them, you know, on LinkedIn. Like you're very vocal about confessions and failures and where you've messed up. Where does that come from? Because I, what I find in this space in particular, one, no one wants to make a mistake. Sometimes folks, you know, have very real hesitation with committing to certain things because they don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to say the wrong thing and so forth. But then there's also that, that layer of when they do mess up, not wanting to admit as a leader, they've messed up. And that's Jeremiah, you just, you lay it all on the table. You lay out all your cards. Like, here's what I tried to do. Here's what I did. Here's where I learned I messed up after the fact. Here are my learning lessons. You know, this is what I pledge to moving forward. Where does that come from? Because it's not something we see often. Well, I, I appreciate that. I mean, it, it's hard for me to to respond without mentioning Brene Brown at all, right? Who is kind of the queen of vulnerability. But I will say, you know, I feel like there's some leaders who look to Brene Brown to kind of understand how to use vulnerability as a tool. And it can be in a very effective tool. For me, I would say the, the the tool part of it and understanding how to use it as a leader, that came after the fact. Like for me, I think in my life, throughout the course of my life, I have just experienced that vulnerability is the first step in reconciliation and growth. And without it, you really can't truly grow. And this is true, this has been true for uh, virtually every aspect of my life, at least the, the parts of my life that are the most important to me, like um, by the relationship with my wife and with my kids and my family and friends. Like if I do want to be the best spouse or the best father or the best parent or the best friend I can be, I have to be vulnerable. Like I need that feedback in order to grow as a person and be a better, better person um, to each of them. And I've definitely experienced that again and again. And it's it, in many ways, now, you know, being at a company like Meta, where, you know, we've got leaders like Sheryl Sandberg, 
um, who's got some amazing, amazing advice on embracing vulnerability in a way that actually leads to growth and change. I have definitely experienced that in my life. And I almost find like the more painful the experience, the more painful the feedback, the, the greater opportunity for growth. And so this is why I covet it. I think this is why a lot of the leaders on my team covet it. Um, and we have a culture where everyone is not just asking for feedback, but really trying to create a safe space so that people around you feel comfortable giving you that feedback because they know you genuinely want it. They know you're not going to react defensively. And ultimately, in response to your question, Sable, it, it's the key to growth as a person. And so um, for me, that's why I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm pretty comfortable with my confessions, not only because I want to embrace that growth, but also because I, I, I make a lot of mistakes. So I learn by failures. And for me, that's been one of the best ways to grow and and continue to improve as a person. I'm so glad you said the growth piece because sometimes it feels as, and I have not, I'm sure I've read data on this in the past, but not recently folks. So please don't quote me or ask for numbers and percentages. I do not have it on hand, but it does feel from like an anecdotal perspective observation, if you will, that the hesitancy of growth causes folks to stay away from discomfort because most discomfort, like you very much so just mentioned, leads to growth. What that growth might look like, sound like, lead to, we, we honestly don't know. But, you know, it's something that we highlight in many of our programs. Like, recognize that your body is responding to the conversation that's, you know, the dialogue that's taking place right now. What might that be signal, signaling to you? What might that mean? And what happens if you just kind of sit in the discomfort and navigate through it versus trying to avoid it? Because I think about these conversations, like we've been talking about oppression, systems of oppression. Uh, we've, we've mentioned racism, but there's so many, you know, there could be Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, disabledism. There's so many systems that exist. If we avoid the conversation because we don't want discomfort, how do we get into a place where we can have inclusive spaces and equity? It's not really possible. Like we have to, we have to have these conversations and it's not going to be like a joy over tea and a cocktail, if you will. There will be moments where you're like, oh, this is rough. This is hard, but it, it it's necessary. You mentioned complicit earlier in, in one of your, um, and one of your earlier responses, and I'm thinking about how you're open and vulnerable. I thank you for just shouting out Brene Brown, lo lo loads of work going there, especially what she does with guilt and shame. Um, and then you, I've already said you're public with like, hey, folks, I, I messed up. You had a very interesting piece. I really appreciated reading it. Um, I don't know what like the official title is because of the platform, but you were very, very vocal on apathy and excuses um and and you know what that meant for you and what you reflected on and recognized within yourself and, and and others if you will you might not have read it i believe this is on linkedin what caused you in particular for that one because not many folks are engaging with vulnerability much less apathy ultimately what triggered my um decision to kind of write that article and share my experience it actually came from seeing a headline in the news um, about, a, about a recent lawsuit initiated by a number of Black coaches against the NFL. Okay. And what's interesting about it is there is a, a rule that's been instituted in the NFL called the Rooney Rule. 
that essentially requires, you know, any open leadership position, coaching position um, on NFL teams, you have to at least consider or interview um, a person of color, a marginalized person in that in that selection process. And that was kind of their their um, their initiative to create more diversity in the league and head coaching positions and leadership. It turns out it has not worked. And essentially it's become just a checkbox. It's a checkbox um, that many teams. Yeah. Yes. And I won't I won't go into the details of that ongoing litigation, but you can read all about it. You can kind of see in the complaint, you know, what those black coaches have experienced and some of the, the really kind of shocking experiences that they learned around this this whole Rooney rule being just a sham. Like they really had no chance at all in getting those positions. It was literally a formality that some teams um, took. Very quickly, I couldn't help but think about my experience in the legal industry, which is many legal teams that I've been a part of have, have adopted the Rooney Rule in some form or another and called it a different name. So any any open role you have when you're a hiring manager on legal teams, you've got to make sure. And, it, you know, some people would say it's terrific, right? Because literally all the recruiters will even, even hold you accountable to say, hey, you need at least one diverse candidate you're considering for this open role. But what I found, and again, you know, I included Hannah, I referenced Hannah in, in my in my um, in my share. You know, the thing I was realizing was, you know, most of my time spent as a hiring manager, I was using following the Rooney rule and it wasn't working for me personally. So as I made kind of went through my mental checklist of all the different hires and the teams that I have built over the time and over the course of my career, they haven't been very diverse. And that was kind of the big problem and realization that I brought to Hannah to say, I want you to help me because I want to do it. I have all the right intentions, but it's not happening. Mm -hmm. And I think what it signaled, signaled to me is a couple things. One is I've got lots of friends in the industry and even outside the industry who are hiring managers, and they may not see themselves as you know people in positions of privilege and power. You are. You are making the decision that Im literally impacts people's lives because you're, de you're deciding who is most deserving mm -hmm. of most employment qualified, opportunities. you know, whatever terminology. However you define yeah. that, whatever terminology you use, but you're, you have the decision-making power to effectively change someone's life. And so that's number one, which is realizing you've got that power and privilege and you have a responsibility to do the right thing. The second thing I think that I realized was I just didn't know, like a lot of what you were saying before, Sable, around we're getting more and more education around diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and understanding systems of oppression, but we're not practicing how to create inclusive spaces. We're not practicing how to recruit diverse teams and build them, right? We're talking about the importance of it, but no one's teaching hiring managers like how to do it. And so one example I'll give you is on our team and across Meta, like we're very committed to building a diverse workforce. And we've got some great company broadcasted goals that we put out there. Um, that I think are all terrific. But at the hiring manager level, it's really hard because we don't have any training for how to do this. And so one of the things that we now do on my team that's been really useful is sometimes I refer to it as a, a gap analysis, mm. right? So we've got we've got this table, this matrix of every team member in my group. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of just lays out their educational background, their work experience, their skills, different things about their perspectives and backgrounds to kind of very quickly display to different team members like we started doing that and over the course of the last few years i mean it has been a remarkable change i mean the way we evaluate candidates and the way we try to optimize for building a team that has maximum cognitive diversity if you will 
I mean, today we have, you know, close to 70% of our team are, are BIPOC. My senior leaders, I have four of them. Mm-hmm. Two are female, two are male. They are all people of color. I have never, looking back at my career, I have never been a part of a team that's so diverse. And the other part of it, Sable, that's just incredible to me is every day I experience the value of that diversity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the kinds of ideas and opinions and robust debate and discussion we have about projects and goals we're working on, I've never experienced that level of cognitive adversity. And in fact, this is why I go around saying, like, I would put our team against any team in a competition. I mean, this is the most impressive team that I've ever been a part of. And people out there, if you know, you were on my teams before, don't don't be offended by this because I'm not saying like you're not smart, you're not talented. It's the combination of the group we have maximized and we're looking to optimize for that cognitive diversity. And it ends up in a, in a more effective organization across the board. And that is clear. So a little bit on, I think, the journey I've been on, the, the change that I've been through. And hopefully, you know, some some hiring managers out there who hear this will kind of take this to heart and really kind of take a hard look at how are you doing? What is your track record? And if you believe all the research that out there, and there's a lot of it now that shows that diverse teams are just simply better and you want a more effective and a better team for your organization, hey, are you doing everything that you're doing that you should be doing? And that was essentially the, the process that I went through. I appreciate the disclaimer for your past teams. I, I'm convinced they'll appreciate that. I'm also convinced your current team will appreciate what you just shared as well. I love the 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 specifics that you you've highlighted in terms of like what are you doing to actually go from dialogue to action and execution in terms of diverse teams. And as you were as you were saying that, something that came to mind, um, and we talked about this. It might have been episode three or four with um, Abella, who also used to be at um, Meta before before the name change. We talked about retention because oftentimes, Jeremiah, I'm not sure if you've heard this. Uh, you had to have heard this because of how long you've been a hiring manager. But oftentimes pushback will be, well, we we hired that diverse candidate, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, and they didn't stay very long. Considering hiring is a costly investment for an organization, it's not a free. Some people think it's free. It's not free, folks, for anyone that doesn't know that. Um, there's money that's involved, but that's not the point. A lot of times because that one diverse candidate, or maybe they had five, but they never stayed more than like, you know, 18 months or what have you. They're like, I don't want to invest in another diverse candidate because they don't stay long versus going, well, what is happening internally that you're not able to retain the diverse candidates and talent that you do recruit? So I love this highlighting of the recruitment piece because that's definitely an important piece to the puzzle. And I also I always want to add in and then retention. What is happening internally, the systems, the processes, the pro, you know, the practices, etc., that often cause people to go, this is not for me. I'm uncomfortable here. I'm dissatisfied here. I'm experiencing discrimination here. And that's why that's why I'm leaving. You don't have to speak to the retention route if you don't want to at all. But it was just something I went, don't forget this, folks. And once you get them, what what are we doing so we're not losing them? I think it's an absolutely great point. I'd love to comment on it, which is, it's interesting. It's um, I feel like there's been such a focus on hiring diverse people and building diverse workforces. 
But again, it kind of goes to what I just mentioned around not really being prepared for what happens when you do that, right? And so even what I just mentioned, Sable, around this is the most diverse team I've ever been on. I, I don't want to. I don't want anyone to to be under a misimpression that it's now like we're done and open the champagne bottle and like we're celebrating every day that we have this great diverse team. No, it's hard work. Now we have this diverse team. What are we going to do with it? How do we leverage the great cognitive diversity we have, and how do we make sure that people feel, especially people from historically marginalized communities, feel like they can be their authentic selves? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many people of color that I talk to and listen to their experience at law firms and corporations, they have to be a different person. They feel like, and the example I've been off, I've often been given is they put me in a box. And so they're happy to have me at this firm because now I add to their diversity numbers, but I can't really be my authentic self. And what I have found as a leader, as a manager is when you have an employee or a direct report that can't be their authentic self, that doesn't bring their authentic self to work. It's almost like you've tied their hands behind their back and you've said, give me your best. You're never going to be able to unlock their potential. You're never going to see the rich creativity, the innovation and the skills and excellence they might bring if they're forced to be to, to not bring their full selves to work. So you've got to create that safe space. So it's something we constantly work on. And I think to your point before, Sable, like the way we work on it is we practice. Mm-hmm. How are we having these conversations? If there are microaggressions, How do we raise our hand and say, hey, what just happened there? Mm -hmm. There's sometimes because we don't have all the training, we're still kind of like rolling out a lot of this training at Meta. And even with our group, I would say it's it's still very much under-resourced that sometimes what we've said, it's almost like a rule I've said to my leads and my team members is if you're in a team meeting, you're feeling a microaggression, but let's say you don't know what to say. You don't know how to raise your hand. You don't want to cause a big problem. I said, our safe word is ouch. (laughs) Ouch. And at least that will stop. That will pause the meeting to say, what just happened? Someone said something that made me feel less than someone said something that made me feel like not good. We don't want to be like that. We want to actually learn from each other. And fortunately, I have, you know, I have a team that's filled with individuals who all have their hearts in the right places. They all want to do the right thing. They don't want anyone to feel bad. They don't want to offend people, but we need to teach each other. We need to learn. And so a lot of it is that practice that safe word, the the training sessions, the reading circles, and all these kinds of things that we can do to practice talking about, you know, systems of systems of oppression, experiences we have, and how we feel, we've got to be able to do that to create that safe space. So people feel like they belong. And I will say, I mean, something that just happened last night, we had a team building event, we went to dinner afterwards. And one of the attorneys of color on my team said to me, he hasn't been on the team that long, only for a few months. He said, this is the first time in his career he feels like he's at home. And I, like, I had to hold back the tears. I was going to say, I, I would so have broken I mean, down at that yeah. moment. I, the tears would have. And this is, this is an accomplished attorney who's been at many law firms, mm-hmm. other in-house, but it's like, he's been at other organizations. He's not a one L, he's been around. He's been put in a box his whole career. And now at Meta, I can't even tell you, you know, the, the things he's able to do, the way he's able to shine, because he feels that safe space. Yeah. It's incredible. no longer tied using your analogy. Yeah. Yep. That's right. That's right. You just, you highlight it so much. And one thing that's just like coming to my mind is the idea of psychological safety and, and on all sides. So for those who might be in a position of power and privilege, for those who might, you know, 
um, be from a marginalized community or minoritized ethnicity. The, the reality is no matter where you are on the spectrum, no matter what system might be under investigation at that moment, the idea is that we're human beings and we are going to make mistakes period. But we are especially going to make mistakes doing this work. As you mentioned, it's like it everything, no matter the organization, it's not getting the amount of resource it really needs to like super, super speed turbocharge change. Resource is often there. But when we realize these are historical things that have been around for hundreds of years, the amount of resource it takes to dismantle and untangle is quite high. That said, you know, I love this use of a safe word, like, ouch. So if for our team, that's our word. What did it take to get folks into a space where they realize mistakes are inevitable? We know your intention is pure, but we also want to focus more on the impact versus our intention because harm is it's going to happen. Mistakes are inevitable. How have you gotten them to like reckon with this reality, but also lean into being in a room or a virtual room and going, ouch. Like Sable's comfortable enough to raise her hand as the black woman and go, ouch. Like, what did that require? What did you have to do? Because it's a beautiful thing, but I know that wasn't necessarily easy and there was intentionality behind that. I will say this is one of the, the benefits that I have being at a company that is truly committed to creating, creating a safe space, an inclusive space for everyone. And there are programs company-wide that I think have kind of laid the foundation for people to be talking about this and not even just the, the safe space to talk about it, encouraging people like we need to talk about this. One of the programs that I love is, is um, a program called the Microphone Report. That's essentially a not, an anonymous hotline where people can report microaggressions and other experiences of discrimination they might've felt. And it's all anonymized and shared with the company. So my team and I, and even my department, will actually go through and, and read about these experiences people have reported to make sure we're understanding, like, are these things that we, we could see ourselves doing? Are there issues that we should be talking about? And we try to implement it and make it useful and practical by saying, let's walk through some of these reported incidents and make sure that we're up to speed, that we're practicing talking about these things so they're not super awkward and people don't feel like they can't raise these things. That has definitely been helpful. A number of the different programs like that throughout the company that have made it easier to talk about these kinds of issues. The other thing I would say uh, for, our, for my team specifically is one thing that's helped a lot is um, a framework that was given to me by another mentor of mine. His name is Reggie Butler. Um, he's a coach and one of his specialties is coaching on inclusive leadership. And one of the things he said to me is, he said, Jeremiah, now that you feel like you've built like a truly diverse team, now the hard work begins. Yeah. That's actually the easy inclusive part. Culture. Yeah. Creating the team. That's the easy actually part. Actually the easy part. You've got talented, diverse people on your team. Like how do you make sure you not you retain them and they feel comfortable and they feel like they can be their authentic selves? One of the, the, the frameworks he gave me that I really like, I've been using it quite a bit, is called Comfort Zone Radius, CZR. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it is a pie with four quadrants. And the four quadrants are my lived experience, your lived experience, subject matter expertise, and relationship depth. Mm. I've actually brought this back to my team to say, hey, we all can see on any Zoom call, at any meeting we attend, we've got a lot of diversity on this team, right? And everyone on my team, they love it. But I said, now the hard work begins. And if we want to make sure that we can actually lean in to that uh, diversity and really leverage it and create that inclusive space, we actually have to be doing the work on the back end. 
And so what do I mean by that? I think about a number of empathy sessions that my department had during the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, where we just got together and we just shared, how are people feeling? And one thing I heard again and again, especially from my colleagues and friends uh, who are black, they would often say like, I'm so tired. I have so many non-black you know, friends and colleagues reaching out to me saying, what can I do? I'm so sorry for you. And many of them, I heard this from, from several black friends of mine, they would all say the same thing, which is like, I'm tired. Just like do the work. Yeah. I can't, you know. And so for a few of them, I would say, what do you mean by that? I like it, but what do you mean by that? And it's like, it's basically it's like, I want you to be learning on your own so that when you bring it to me, I am, I don't have the burden of educating on educating you on all these issues. My lived experience, black people's lived experience, you know, subject matter knowledge. And so one thing Reggie told me that really resonated with, I think a lot of people on my team is don't go around just asking these questions and you haven't done any work on your own. If we want to embrace this diversity and, and create this inclusive culture, make sure you're doing the work on your own. And so I will say, Sable, like it's been really beneficial for my team because occasionally someone will raise a question on Sable, what is it like to be a black woman and experience whatever, some yeah. bad thing. Mm -hmm. And some of it, I like, you know, I, I cringe a little bit. To say, Those are cringe words. Oh, I really, I really don't want Sable to have to relive this. It's probably painful. And to be honest, like, really, you don't know about this? And I will tell you, like, this still happens, but there's so much grace on the team because on the back end, they are reading books. They are listening to podcasts. And the other thing that's really important, they are investing in relationship depth. So if someone on my team asks you that question, Sable, like I could be pretty sure nowadays that you have a pretty strong relationship with that well, you're person. Even so you go have there if you want. Yes, you're comfortable going there and you're going to pause to say, you know what? I'm not crazy about reliving this. I'm not crazy about explaining again. But for this person, I'm going to do it because they're my friend. Yeah, it's different. It goes a long it's way. And so actional. absolutely. And so I think those four areas are really important for any organization that's trying to build that safe space. Make sure that each and every person is doing the work on the back end. So when you come together, you've got that extra grace, you've got that extra flexibility to be able to lean in and practice so that if you mess up, it's going to be okay. There's some extra grace there because they all know you've been working on your own. I mean, you said so much. I love the, the use of the word grace because Tarana Burke, which spoke at you all's leadership day in 2018, spoke to, you know, grace meets grace. And what that means in relationship with each other as we're doing this work, like this work requires grace, but you highlighted such an important piece that, you know, relationship matters and where can we remove the burden? You know, I'm thinking about, you know, all of the violence because we've been talking about Black Lives Matter for since the murder of George Floyd, as if he were the only one murdered that year or the first one for that matter. But when you think about all of the violence that has also um, impacted the Asian community as a whole. So, and of course, when folks say Asians, like, who are you talking about? Like, folks, this could be Vietnamese, Japanese, Korean, Chinese, like, you know, Malaysian, what, whatever specific community within that. It's like, I should not go to you and go, and how do you feel? It's like, what can I do? Yeah, I might be from a marginalized community, but I, Google is free. The podcasts are free. What can I do as a Black woman to read up? and figure out things. And then if we have that rapport, we have that relationship, the conversation goes so very differently than when that none of that is there. You are so right. And I've seen it and I've experienced it when two people come to the table and one of the people has not done yeah. the work. It's just, just not a great recipe, no, right? Because there's not really that yeah. genuine desire to build that empathy. It almost feels 
it almost feels disingenuous. Yeah. It's like, tell me about this. I want to learn. Mm -hmm. If you really wanted to learn, you'd be doing something. You, you would have started already. I don't expect you to be capstone level at the university, but you would yes. have tinkered in introductory material at a minimum. I cannot believe Absolutely. an hour has passed. I must ask you this last question. I could have a thousand more if I'm honest, but I must ask you this last question before we leave. I've asked everyone, if you could have dinner, a meal, breakfast, lunch, whatever tickles your fancy with a person in the equity space, past or present, you cannot say Hannah for the record. I'm throwing that in there. But if, <laughs> because that is easy to do. But if you could have a meal with anyone past the president in the equity space, who would that be? Or who, yeah, who would that be? One person, two people, you know, whatever. Uh, first, I will say, if anyone's on this, if anyone listening to this is wondering, I am not getting paid by Fearless Futures no, here. So I, I, I know I've mentioned Hannah quite a bit here. Honestly, She's changed my life. And so I, I just want to, I'm first going to say that she won't be my person because you yeah. said I can't choose her, but um, it's, she's been incredible, an incredible mentor to me and has been so gracious with her time, extra time, even outside of my class with her. I don't know, right off the top, I would probably say, say, well, I mean, there's so many that I'm thinking about right now. Um, Brian Stevenson is just, the story is so incredible. And in many ways, I mentioned before Braxton Davis on my team, it's just, there are certain individuals who are, I, I, I feel are just, they're so inspirational and exceptional because they see a problem and many of us see a problem, right? We see these problems of systemic oppression. We see systemic inequality. We can talk about it all day, how bad it is, but there's some people who look at it and they say, I'm going to go do something. And one of the things that Brian Stevenson said during one talk that I saw was that, you know, so many people now talking these days around diversity and diverse teams are so much better. And it's all, you know, it's such a happy thing that, you know, people are all involved in this movement. But he said, in order to achieve true equity, a sacrifice must be made. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the, the part of the story that people don't really want to hear. Like, we're all willing to do something, say words do whatever is performative as long as it doesn't cost us yeah. anything. What's and I see this, doing I see this, I see this again and again, you know, and I see this even with many of my API friends out there. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm all about supporting the API community. I love it. I have so many API friends out there who are all, you know, very much aligned with me on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. But then when it gets to affirmative action or, you know, trying to include more mar marginalized communities at certain universities or schools. And it might, quote unquote, you know, take a spot away from their child. All of a sudden, I don't support that. That doesn't seem fair. So it's, it's interesting how when it hits home, when now there's a sacrifice that needs to be made, even though we all know the right thing is that most of the institutions, the educational institutions in our country are broken and they need way more diversity. If that impacts my family or my kids, all of a sudden, not sure I'm in it. I'm not sure I'm, I'm all in it for that. So I think that's that's a really important part of the message that I think Brian has mentioned. And, and, you know, people like Braxton Davis on my team and also Brian, like they just live it. You know what I mean? They they see the problem. They live it. Brian Stevenson went to Harvard. He could go anywhere and do anything with his talent and background. But instead, he fights for the defenseless. People can't afford you know, criminal defense lawyers who are wrongly um, wrongly charged for crimes and held in prison and it's just, it's incredible. Every day for people like that, I'm truly inspired. And and I'm fortunate to be surrounded by people, even on my own team, who inspire me every day. So I'm going to say Brian Stevenson 
and Braxton Davis and other people on my team, I can have dinner with them anytime I want. And I'm going to, so I don't need to say them. I'm going to pick Brian. <laughs> Fair enough. Jeremiah, thank you so much for your time and your energy. It was a pleasure. I know what hour is like the longest you want to go in the podcast world before people stop listening. But do know if this were not a podcast, I would just keep talking to you until we absolutely had to do other things because we're adults with responsibilities. Um, but again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. I love talking to you, Sable. Thank you so much.